0: I'm Andrew Whiteside and today I'm speaking to author Brendan Weir about his debut novel Tāne's War. It's set in two time periods, namely the First World War and 1950s New Zealand. In the earlier time period, Tāne, a young Māori man, escapes trouble in New Zealand in 1914 and ends up in the trenches of France during the Great War. It's at this time that he explores his sexual identity while keeping the true nature of his orientation secret. In the later time period, 1950s New Zealand, Tane is now managing a training farm for wayward boys and encounters Briar, a confused young man just beginning to explore his own identity. Tane's War is a wonderful book that explores human conflict and sexuality in a very personal way. In discussing the book with Brendan, I began by asking him why he wanted to write this particular story.
1: It sort of chased me, if you like, (laughs) for a decade and a half, really. Um, I, when I was younger, when I was much younger, a, a man called Dave O'Brien came into my life. He was an older man. Uh, and he acted as something of a mentor to me. He uh, would be, oh, he'll be 75 this year. He's um, been, a, he's a gay man who was gay and out his whole life, which is something quite, amazing when you stop and think about, um, you know, he was born in the 1940s and he's sort of been through times that it must have been very difficult for him to be an out gay man and yet despite that he's you know, been worked, worked as an electrical engineer on the Whakamaru Dam, he's worked for OGIS, he's been a mechanic, he's run his own shop, he's just been a you know, a successful um, open gay man living in uh, various parts of New Zealand. So he's been an inspirational figure to me. now. He, His late partner, um, Clary Slade, uh, who would be, well, what, 90 now if he was still alive, uh, he became a friend of mine as well. And Clary never really spoke about his past very much in all the years that I knew him, until he was, well, not exactly on his deathbed, but very close to the end of his life. Uh, in 2004, I got the opportunity to actually just sit down with him. He'd, uh, had some health issues at the time, some serious health, serious health issues. Uh, and sit down with him and talk to him about his past. I just wanted him to open up, I wanted to find out. I've become a bit fascinated through Dave with what it might have been like for gay men back, you know, back in the nineteen fifties, sixties, seventies. I, you know, haven't been through all those struggles myself in the eighties and having deal with all sorts of shit Uh, in terms of violence towards me and various other things. Uh, But I realised I got off lightly in comparison to what a lot of these older men must have gone through. So I talked to him and he finally opened up and talked about his past. He lived at a time when most gay men uh, had to keep their sexuality hidden and had to have secret relationships. So he had girlfriends. As he said to me, he wasn't able to sort of move ahead. There'd be no prospect of sort of moving up the ladder in terms of um, his work or anything else if he didn't sort of play the game. So he had girlfriends on the surface, but he had uh, male companions uh, behind the scenes. And his first um, experiences, he was a teenager himself, or he was 19 or something himself, had been with a man who'd returned from World War I. A man apparently, he didn't tell me much about him, he told me he had a limp that had been wounded in World War I uh, and that he said he was of mixed heritage, which I assume was the same. Clary was Maori European and I assume he meant that this man was the same. That, when he told me that, I found that quite shocking, which surprised me. And then I found myself afterwards going, why was that shocking to me? Why was it shocking to think about a soldier who had returned from World War I, then having a relationship with another man was here. And I realised that it was a whole narrative that was missing from our history, was this idea of gay soldiers. This was back in 2004, we've since covered that ground a little more, there has been uh, a little more focus on that. But keep in mind, I was sort of raised uh, in the ni- early 1980s, 70s and 80s, the in a very conservative part of Auckland and within conservative communities, faith-based community, in fact, uh, where all the narratives of homosexuals were of criminality or you know highly feminine men and that sort of thing. So this idea of a gay soldier that had been out and served his country was quite confronting to me. So I thought to myself, why was it confronting? Why should it be confronting? So this character just sat with me, sat in my head for... Well, over a decade, really. Um, And I actually, some years after that, in 2008, I went and tried to find some more. Clary had passed away by then. I tried to find more information about this man. Um, I wasn't able to unearthed very much at all. I spoke to a couple of Clary's contemporaries who were still alive and they were able to confirm that Clary had had this connection or spoken of this connection he had had but they weren't able to offer me any more detail. So instead I decided to create a completely fictional account based on that. So yes, but I was intrigued to write the idea of this sort of a gay soldier, a self-aware gay soldier, someone who knew that he was serving his country, Yet it was a country who didn't ex- which didn't accept him. So, and to me, that's you know that's a it's a giving on a whole different level, to serve your country because you love your country. But to do so, uh, knowing
0: that your country doesn't accept who you are. Tell me about whether you re- you did some research into this, or have you just plucked it all from your own? You created these scenarios in your in your head.
1: It's hard to you really can't. Well, maybe some can, but I don't have the talent to uh, pluck this entirely from my head. So I researched um, quite widely uh, in doing this. Now, this this work began as a master's thesis, actually began as a form of screenplay. And this was a mentored master's program at AUT. And the great thing about the way this master's program worked is uh, you work alongside mentors, mentors who are published authors and who are experts. My two primary mentors there were Mike Johnson and uh, James George. Uh, and James George in particular was able to point me in the direction of a number of resources which were really helpful. Jane, uh, Jane Tolitan's An Awfully Great Adventure was absolutely life-changing. I, a book that was written by her after uh, she spent months and months interviewing um, returned soldiers. Uh, so, And that's an audio archive that's actually available down now down at Archives New Zealand. And during the year that I wrote this thesis I was funded by UT to um, spend time in Wellington and to go through this audio archive. Uh, it's amazing to hear the words of soldiers and returned servicemen in their own voices. Interesting uh, point I'll make there is that in all of that uh, in that entire audio archive, there were, I only found five references to homosexuality, and uh, two of them denied that it existed in the armed services at all, and you could tell there were sort of knee-jerk reactions to the questions that had been asked. Uh, and three of them referred to it as a sort of d- despicable vice of the Turks. So that sort of frames, the, as you can imagine, the narratives that were around at the time. and. So it gives us a real insight into how and why gay men would have had to keep any element or aspect of their sexuality well hidden. So yes, the, there was a lot of research involved. There are three um, uh, settings that I use and I chose intentionally because sort of crucibles of masculinity. Uh, one being the training camp and subsequently the trenches of World War I. Uh, the second being a, um, a ship, a merchant navy ship, um, that sails from New Zealand to Lisbon, actually. First of its kind uh, of ilk to go through the Panama Canal, in fact. Um, and that, there's a whole raft of research that took place there. Uh, and the third was on this training farm in Hunua in the 1950s. Now, as I know, you already know, I lived on a farm in uh, Hunua. And when I first bought the farm, I discovered it had uh, quite a history. It had a very old homestead on it. And I went to the Franklin sort of Historical Society and I went to Pukakaui and researched the background of the farm, the property, and discovered it had been, at one stage in its life, a training farm for orphan boys. Uh, and that provided me with the main setting. Uh, yet another crucible of sort of masculine attitudes, potential masculinity, um, and the sort of macho sort of uh, uh, rugby racing and beer um, reality that a lot of um, our society lived in in the 1950s, and all of with all of the expectations that were placed on men around masculinity. So it was, yeah, it's a, it's a great perspective, it was a great setting for conflict of for generating conflict. And as I say, a a young boy from the city who's, you know, aware of his own sexual, emerging sexuality and uh, is struggling with it in some ways, uh, arrives at the farm
0: and sets things in motion, basically. So obviously this is a a project that um, you've loved doing and it's very important to you, but I can imagine, particularly looking at the length of the book, that there are times when... there must have been challenges in writing it. How do you stay focused? How do you actually deliver on the idea? Staying
1: focused on a project of this length is really challenging. Uh, And I have to say that it has taken effectively three and a half, almost four years (laughs) to complete. Um, I've learned enough along the way that I know my next one, which I'm writing now, will take me half the length of time or less. Uh, it is a learning, it's always a uh, learning project. So, yeah, but the project sort of uh, had its ups and downs over the <laughs> three and a half, four years I was writing it. The research component at the beginning, when I was um, uh, framing it as a form of screenplay, um, uh, it went through so many changes. That's the wonderful thing about the research. And I would say to any um, author out there, any budding the author out there that uh, that research really is the single most important element of what you're doing whether you're just researching your settings which is what i was largely doing uh, or the history of those settings in this case um, since my novel is effectively an historical novel uh, or whether you're researching the psychology of your characters um, either way the knowledge you gain, and the understandings you gain, will inherently change your work. So, the structure of my work changed like well, a dozen times, I guess. <laughs> we have a, a, a bit of a laugh in the industry about sort of the traditional sort of uh, naming traditions of drafts you know, final draft one, final draft dot two, dot docs, final draft three, dot docs. <laughs> You know, we finally get to the final, final, final draft. And it was a, um, yeah, it was a process of a slow, evolving, I guess. My understanding of the characters evolved as I wrote them.
0: What kind of a writer are you in terms of, are you a planner? Have you planned out the book in advance? Or do you just write and see what comes out?
1: I am... Uh, perhaps a non typical writer in the way I approach my work. Uh, I am something of a planner, although um, I also sort of use the development on the page approach as well, format on the page as we call it sometimes. Um, you just pour it all out, knowing very well that 10% of what you write is going to be great, uh, 10% of it is going to be dire, and the other 80% is going to be something in between, stuff that you need to work with. Um, but we I spoke earlier about the research. The research leads to planning. You will, as you learn more about the psychology of your characters, as you learn more about the settings they are in and the way that they, by definition, must respond uh, to the situations you put them in, uh, then you will find uh, the structure of the work Uh, becomes,
0: not predefined,
1: but becomes clearer to you. um, uh, And that, in a way, is an element of planning within the work. But I'm not a sit-down and um, come up with a treatment for the novel, with a beginning, a middle and an end, and with specific outcomes. I knew the basis of the conflict I wanted to write and I knew the effective outcomes, although the final outcomes, the final choices that are made at the end of the book were not finalised in my own head until I was in about the fifth draft. So, yes, I think to start a work I need a certain amount of planning, Uh, and that planning is largely around character for me. So, my work does tend to be character-driven. I need to know who I'm writing, I need to know who I'm writing about, I need to know where they're coming from, what's driving them. You know, just how fucked up they are. Um, and that, that informs and creates the drama and the work, because that's the conflict, is always the basis of any good writing. So, yeah, so that's the sort of, um, yeah, I guess I'm a bit of a hybrid of a writer, because a lot of writers do Choose particularly writers of historical fiction, very often are planning-based writers. They are structuralists. They begin with a
0: very clear framework of where they're going. And do you, Are you thinking about who's going to be reading it? Or are you simply thinking about, this is the story I have to tell and this is the way I'm going to tell it?
1: As an author, you do inherently think about who's going to be reading your work. Although, to begin with, that wasn't. Um, an element of what was going on in my head. To start with, this character that I mentioned that had sort of been whispered to me from generations back, that haunted me, (laughs) just sat there and kept nagging me, Um, uh, really spoke to me and created um, the uh, spark to really, um, that drove me to start with. And so to begin with, I was just really exploring a story You get to a certain point where you sort of step back and you look and you've got a body of work. You look and go, damn. And it's often around the first time that you print something out. You'll work electronically these days, but I'm the kind of person that, especially when it comes to editing work, I like to have something physical in front of me. I'm so old school. Um, So I, you know, the first time you actually print a draft out and you go, damn, that's a real thing. It takes on a life. And at that point, you are forced to acknowledge that you actually want other people to read it. (laughs) Um, And that, by definition, leads you to wondering who will read it. Mm. Who is this for? Who am I writing this for? Which comes back to the why am I writing. I envisaged that my book would be read largely by gay men, by other gay men. in the first sort of instance, uh, it's interesting to see that the, you know, we get it's sort of gone into a second print run now and it's selling wonderfully successfully, which is highly exciting and somewhat unexpected. Uh, that I, you get reports back from the publicist and from the publisher, and uh, they show that the book is being read largely by women, quite a wide age range of women. Worth noting that at one point, fairly early on, I decided I would frame this as a young adult work, and because a lot of the characters, their ages, are within that young adult um, range. I, but as the book grew, as the work grew, and as the I found myself grappling with sort of more intense and more challenging themes within it, I, I guess, it evolved into something that was one foot more in literary fiction so although it's interesting the publisher decided to um, present it as new adult fiction which is something I'd never heard of so um, but they assure me is something that has a foot in young adult fiction and the other foot planted firmly in literary fiction so something that combines the two but that sounds like good marketing to me doesn't it Um, uh, so yes you do think about your audience eventually uh, I wonder whether it informed my work in some way. It probably did. I, as I say, I imagined the work being read by other gay men and therefore I probably allowed there to be moments in there where I didn't feel I needed to explain connections that might be between two men in this instance. Uh, or feelings or shared histories that we might, as gay men, understand inherently, that might not be evident to our straight peers.
0: Um, But but in a sense, I mean, I've read a lot of novels where I don't know necessarily the world that this story comes from, but I can gain an inference from it, or I can Google and find out. Absolutely. So yeah, so I, I think you, know, you you I don't think you need to second guess or to over explain because it is embedded in something natural and it would probably feel unnatural if you had to explain it. Yes, I agree that there's an, a tendency
1: and again this is probably a first author thing. There's a ten, I mean I have a little background in in writing children's television and educational television and and I've had a number of short stories published over the years, but we, the first time that you're de- sort of grappling, I should say, with a large work like this, you do find yourself, there's a tendency, I think, to uh, want to um, offer too much backstory to explain every little thing. And um, that's a sign of bad writing, I have to be honest. And that was one of the things that the wonderful mentors that I had available to me um, uh, during the years I was writing this, were, you know, they were able to point that out to me and say, look, You don't need to explain that, you don't need to provide the background information there. Um, This is the day and age of having an encyclopedia in our pocket called Google, so (laughs) that's always available. Uh, Also, um, yes, good writing actually challenges, for me anyway, as a reader, I love to read something that challenges me a little bit and makes me think and pushes me outside my comfort zone. One of the reviews that one of the first reviews that came out was from a um, a reporter who or reviewer who um, was a straight man, and I think he titled the review uh, I'd Never Read a Gay Book. (laughs) And that was interesting to see that perspective the perspective of someone saying, Oh, well, I would never have picked up a book that specifically I knew was focused on gay stories or had an anomaly, you know, a gay lead character or whatever, uh, but that oh, I read it anyway and I actually found myself jolly well enjoying it, um, which suggests to me that I managed to cross that barrier, I managed to push past that, because there are, you know, our sexuality, especially in the context of the themes that I'm grappling with, is bullying and war and... Um, what is family? What you know? How do we define the connections that you know define us? Um, these are the primary themes in the novel, and they are greater themes than you know. They go beyond our sexuality. They go beyond um, uh, the other sort of ways we might may define ourselves. So, yeah, I think if you're grappling with sort of larger human issues, then inherently your work should have a broader appeal.
0: That was Brendan Weir talking about his book Tane's War, and uh, if you look for it, you'll notice that his uh, pen name is Bren Daniel Weir. It's a book that I highly recommend, it's a great read, and one that made me feel um, a wide range of emotions. I'm Andrew Whiteside, thank you for listening. If you like this interview, please share it.